everybody. Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. On this week's episode... We examine the dual experiences of both Twitter users and marketers in light of Elon Musk's takeover. Oh, looking forward to that. <laughs> and next, we'll tell you how Gen Z is deviating from the norm again. As always. And then we have a special guest, Patrick Dury, who will examine the barriers of preventing Americans from receiving health care. All that is coming up next on America This Week. Hey, Libby, what's going on? How are you? I'm great. You know, I'm, I think I'm definitely suffering from the daylight savings time transition. I don't know about you. I think we talked about that this week. It's been really hard. <laughs> I, uh, I, I basically settle that with more coffee. I overcompensate with espresso. But um, Ditto. I'm on my second cup. <laughs> right. Why don't you tell our listeners and maybe new listeners about our show just briefly? Yeah, sure. So our podcast aims to bring the American society into the boardroom, highlighting the emerging needs and desires bubbling to the top so that business leaders and just curious people are better prepared to navigate towards the future. We try to take data and make it a little palatable. Why don't we get in as always and start with the three numbers of the week. We call this our weekly heat. And I'm going to start by telling you that I'm really excited. They're all about crypto this week, cryptocurrencies. So let's start with 33. Did you know, Libby, 33% of those aged 44 years and under think cryptocurrencies are good place to put money for the long haul. Now, the next number, though, Libby, at 13 is just 13% of those 45 and older think the same. And lastly, this is absolutely fascinating. 37% of voters said that for the recent midterms, they were taking into account candidates' positions on cryptocurrency. Libby, crypto is a midterm issue. What do you make of this? I thought that was the most fascinating point, that people are thinking about politics, candidates' positions of cryptocurrency. I think the reason is because there's this young, diverse group of constituents who recognize the value of crypto. And it's not just like which platforms, what currencies, but just that there is some sort of equity building advantage towards the future. But overall, Americans agree there should be clear regulation on the industry. That's 81% of Americans. I think what's really interesting in light of the news, I mean, during the midterms, during this week, you know, another cryptocurrency exchange suffered a major liquidity crisis, FTX. On Sunday, people sought to withdraw $5 billion from the accounts, which is a classic financial run. And by Tuesday, it blew up. And in July of this year, we already saw Voyager and Celsius declare bankruptcy. So while there's clear kind of consumer desire in a lot of ways to build new equity and, and wealth generation in different kind of platforms and verticals and means, there's got to be something that's regulated about this because it's it's kind of dangerous without some sort of regulation. I think that's a really great point. I know you've covered this sector extensively for the Harris Poll and you see sort of this continuing sort of bullishness among young people and, and people of color and other audiences, right, in America? Yeah. And that I think really everyone should take away the learning from that is just that, hey, people are raising their hand. They want a different way in to build financial mm. wealth and equity. And so how can you help them and what can you do about it? Okay, well, let's get in. We've got two stories mm -hmm. to talk about. Let's talk about our first big story, which is cheering and jeering Musk's Twitter takeover. Okay, so you know what, Libby, Elon's making news again in light of Musk's recent takeover. We actually went back into the field and asked Americans, we asked Twitter users and Americans at large their viewpoints, and we found both critics 
and fans. And I think it's important to look at this in the light of what has happened this week. This is obviously a fluid story, but you have advertisers like GM, Pfizer, UA are all sort of putting their advertising on hold. But when we went in and did our research and we actually published this data, Libby, with the USA Today, The Hill and The Wall Street Journal, there's a couple of interesting things that sort of really show sort of two sides of the debate of his acquisition. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, the probably the first thing to start with is what's the macro focus of Elon Musk even before you get into the like why people like it and why people don't. And there's two things there. One is free speech and the other one is revenue. So Elon has described himself as a free speech absolutist and he's pledged to make the platform a destination for accurate information, even though he's loosening the platform rules. So it's a little tricky. And then the second thing that's interesting is he's not a fan of advertising. So from the revenue perspective, he is currently working on a subscription revenue model to be less dependent on ad sales, which account for 90% of Twitter's overall revenue, which is worth saying that Twitter's revenue has never been like the key selling point of Twitter at all. So it's an interesting proposition he's putting himself in. Oh, that's really helpful. So let's get in and look at the data. Why don't we start with the critics? So if you look at the people that aren't supportive of muscle ownership, first of all, they tend to skew female and they also skew Gen Z younger. And we found that in fact, more than half of Gen Z Twitter users are also more likely to believe that Musk will hurt Twitter's product quality. They believe it's going to hurt freedom of the press rather at 44% and nearly more than one third rather 37% believe that Musk is going to hurt free speech on the internet with this acquisition compared to older users. Now, Libby, on the other side, there's also fans. In fact, very robust numbers, two thirds, 67% of Twitter users support Musk owning Twitter, especially Republicans at 79%, men at 70%, and millennials at the same number. We should circle back and talk about the differences between millennials and Gen Z. You see again, an interesting bifurcation there in attitudes. But that seven in 10 number also pops up because seven in 10 Twitter users believe Musk will positively impact increasing free speech and nearly two thirds on that topic of helping improve freedom of the press. So let's talk about who's staying and who's going. Well, in general, three in 10 Twitter users say they'll use the app more now that Musk owns it, but more Republicans, millennials, and male users say they'll be scrolling more even more substantially, about four in 10 of those audiences. And again, men tend to say that they're going to scroll more, be on the platform more than women at 36 to 26%. I thought it was also interesting that while over a fifth say they'll scroll less at 22%, those female and Gen Z users are more likely to cut back at 24%. So one last bit of angle on this, and I want your take, is let's talk a little bit about the subscription plan. So Musk has announced plan to sell blue verification badges to hold on to your check mark at $8 a month. So that's his subscription plan. But only half of frequent Twitter users, 51%, and roughly one third of current Twitter account holders at 36% say they would be likely to use Twitter if it required a monthly subscription. And again, those numbers get amplified. Women in Gen Z are less likely to pay a monthly subscription compared to men. And millennials 
are a little bit more likely as well as men to pay that subscription fee. So Libby, sort this all out for us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because you're seeing that the idea that revenue is going to be driven by subscriptions probably isn't going to play out the way Musk had envisioned. But also you see brands are pulling out as well. So companies like Mondelez, General Mills, General Motors, Audi, United, Pfizer, they've all paused their advertising. So it's just like, where is the Twitter's ad revenue, you know, where is the revenue going to come from? And also, John, I think it's worth just mentioning the impact this might have on Tesla too, right? Like Elon Musk's darling, it's had a a pretty big impact there, right? Yeah, I mean, you got to start to think about the brand rub, right? Because he's he's the CEO of both these companies and and Tesla and our Harris Poll data has had just surging, surging popularity. It's been one of the darling brands, both in our corporate reputation survey that we do with Axios, as well as in our brand data. And, you know, when he disclosed on Tuesday, this being November, that he'd sold shares worth $4 billion in the first two weeks of November. You know, the the stock responded by shedding about 25% of its value since right around Halloween. And there was one analyst that quoted Musk's dark comedy show with Twitter has essentially tarnished the Tesla story and stock and is starting to potentially impact the Tesla brand. So we did look at that. And while it's interesting to note, we asked this question, do you think Tesla is on the way up? holding steady or on the way down. And what we see in the numbers on a past 30-day basis is that on the way up has eroded slightly from 62% to 54%. But when you add that 54 with holding steady, you still have three quarters of Twitter users who see uh, Tesla in a positive light. We've seen in our past that we know that kind of the thing that you and I talk about a lot Mm. with kind of C-suite executives is that CEOs are clearly the brands today. You know, eight in 10 Americans believe that CEOs have an impact on their company's reputation, ethical standards, and financial success. So when Elon Musk is doing his like dark comedy moments on Twitter, it is something to definitely watch for across his portfolio of brands because I think he's had a really shiny effect previously on anything he's touched. But if he gets too dark and he falls out of touch with culture and people's needs, you know, those are darker days ahead for his other portfolio of, of companies as well. Is there but, any, any advice you would give him in the, in the new team? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, here's my my ultimate take on this. So I think like when we go, go back and look at what do people want from the next evolution of the internet, which we've been talking about for the last year, like kind of web three, but just talking to people about what do they want from the evolution of the internet, three things come top. The first two are safety and control followed by freedom of speech. So I think you might find platforms that literally go more towards safety and control and more towards freedom of speech. And when you think about Twitter, it was never really the most safe environment to play, but it's gotten worse. I mean, I think one of the interesting stats that we pulled out is that the N word on Twitter increased by almost 500% in a 12 hour period over the previous average following must closing. So it's, it's definitely not as safe of a place as it once was. And it's just like, you know, Musk has his own reply to that, but it it just seems like he's headed in a direction where he doesn't want to create the safety that brands and marketers and core groups need. 
So that's kind of one way. And then the other side of it is like for the people who want to express themselves, will they actually pay this $8 a month as we hit a recession? We're starting to hit a cap in just the amount of subscription-based services people will even pay for. But the thing I'm most interested, John, in is this type of ownership shift. So if you've built your brand or you've built a community on these platforms, on these social media platforms, will people then want more decentralized ownership, like social media platforms in the future that they spend time, money, and energy and building community on. You know, for example, if if you're like an individual who's built your professional brand on Twitter and now it's changing into a space that you don't want to operate in, how do you reconcile that? Or think about communities like Black Twitter who really were a big part of Twitter's like cultural traction in the market. And now they're kind of facing a space where they're more, you know, not as uh, not as inclusive or welcomed as even though their community built a big part of that cultural relevancy. So it's like, do you think that in that case, that will really push us away from centralized ownership models and that type of version. I think that might be a big shift in seeing how billionaires can kind of take over things. I think that's really interesting. We have seen that in our data, Libby, that people want this decentralized web and they want more ownership and they are tired of the fang sort of ruling the world. It is interesting to note that Mastodon, which is sort of the the new place that people are rumored to move over to has actually doubled its uh, audience to 1 million users since Musk took over the platform. So maybe people are experimenting. I don't know. Are they going to Substacks? Are they going yeah. like... Well, with all those Twitter employees leaving, maybe they'll create something great. You know, maybe they'll create the next version. <laughs> yeah. Well, the one thing we know about this story is it's not over, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll be watching um, it. So... Can we have something light? Can we talk mm-hmm. about our palate cleanser this week? This is our light, refreshing number of the week. Yeah, so John, so two weeks ago, we talked about older Gen Z and the passive aggressive emoji choices, right? Thumbs up is means kind of passive aggressive action oh, right. to a Gen yeah. Zer. So now we, we thought it'd be fun to ask, like, well, what other things are they kind of disrupting? So John, if I said, thank you, what would you say? You're welcome. Yes. Okay. So yes, a lot of other Americans would say you're welcome. Um, the majority of Americans, eight and 10, over your no, no problem or any time. However, Gen Z are much more likely to say no problem and of course, and any time. And I know that, John, we've oh had this conversation gosh. how that rubs you the wrong way, right? You just don't like to hear no problem. No problem. I can't. It's so, it's so. <laughs> Uh, it's just my age. I'm a young boomer. So <laughs> when I when I go to the coffee shop, I get the barista and I say, oh, thanks. And I go, no problem. Like, you know, you're just annoying me. Does it annoy you because it assumes there was a problem and then they say yes. it's no problem? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I'm dating myself, but it's like a Seinfeld episode. Seinfeld would do something on this, I believe, if it was still on. So another, so another thing you should be expecting besides using your thumbs up emoji is that Gen Zers will say no problem to you. And it's something that you have to breathe in and exhale and get okay. over probably. <laughs> well, it's twice that of boomers, right? Yes. Okay, I will adapt, I will evolve. More importantly, let's get into our our second big story. And for that, we're so excited to have with us our special guest, Patrick Drury. Hey, Patrick, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Just a quick little bit of background. So Patrick is the Vice President of Product Management at Change Healthcare, which is this really great healthcare technology company that's focused on insights, innovations, and, and really accelerating the transformation of the US 
healthcare system, which is what we need for sure. So Patrick, thanks for joining us. Libby, why don't we get into it? Yeah, Patrick. So this is the second biannual 2022 Change Healthcare Harris Poll Consumer Index, and it's sought to understand how easy or hard it is for consumers to find access and pay for healthcare. So maybe, Patrick, you could start at the beginning and detail what is the main problem you're seeing in healthcare today? Sure. And so it's hard to, to really narrow in on a, on a single main thing that that's kind of the problem in healthcare, but I think it all centers around healthcare is this complex you know, fragmented system, which makes it hard to find access and pay for care. And then that problem is experienced on both the, the provider side, so having to navigate, um, you know, their side of the system, as well as the patient side. And so, you you know, on both, on both sides, you see, you know, patient satisfaction rates decreasing, as well as, you know, uh, sort of these labor shortages on, on the provider side, as, you know, they're not, you know, they're suffering the same labor, you know, crisis that everyone else is. And so it's, uh, it's really coming to a, to a tipping point. Uh, for us in, in healthcare. It's pretty interesting in the data, Patrick, you know, to your point, 63% say it takes too much effort to find quality care today. Another 62% said that it, it always takes longer than I expected to set up healthcare appointments. So that, that struggle of navigating that complexity seems really daunting. I'm just wondering maybe if you could kind of go a little bit deeper and talk about what the ramifications are. Of a, of a poor healthcare experience. Sure, and so think about like, and I would just draw you back. And you know, any non-healthcare experience you have, if it's a poor experience, what are you likely to do? And and it's you know, the answer mm. is not do it. Uh, right, uh, hmm. which is which is a major problem when it comes to your healthcare. Your healthcare is something that you should be doing, but then our sort of our natural instincts as human beings, when there's abrasion, is to just not do it when you're faced uh, with some of these challenges. And so, you know, we actually on that Harris poll, we we surveyed you know almost 2,000 patients, and half of them say they avoided seeking care uh, wow. because of uh, because of that. And then you know, and another two thirds said it feels like every step in the healthcare process is a is a chore. Right, which is you know, I always say that's kind of like it's really an indictment of the of the system when it's when it's kind of framed that way. And then you know, additionally, most say they don't even know how much a treatment or a visit will cost until months after they get it. Right? Which Unbelievable. Is, again, uh, some of these things that really kind of set up for points of abrasion. Do you think Americans just feel defeated or reticent? Like, what's sort of the the mood that is? coming out of them when you say that half of them avoid seeking care? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a good question. I think I think there's um, I think they do feel defeated. I think, you know, it's it's a weird thing because healthcare is one of these things that you need to get. But then um, but then you should be more proactive about doing it. But then often, you know, when when it's when when people are trying to be proactive and they're faced with some of these challenges, yes, like they will raise their hands and, and be defeated. But then uh, some of the implications there is if you if you put off care, then and then uh, you will you will ultimately uh, face this time where you will need to access it whether you like it or not, and then, yeah. and then you will be brought into the into the healthcare system. You know at that point. So um, um, so yes, it's defeated. Everybody wants it to change um, all around, and so we're we're all working on. Yeah, and, and Patrick, it's like you know if we took the same seamless consumer experiences and and put them on healthcare, you know, is that what people are looking for? Like 
you know, the the idea that it could be more digitalized, more like Uber, like what did what did you kind of see there? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and so in the same, you know, uh, again, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. And so uh, back to the to that Harris poll, we looked at 87% of consumers said scheduling appointments should be as easy as booking an Uber, right? Um, or, you know, 70% said they wish they could shop for healthcare entirely online. And so, you know, it's one of these things where uh, other industries that have been more tech forward and innovative have set this bar uh, for healthcare that we have, you know, so we know what the finish line is. Um, we just need to sort of, we just need to move towards it. And so patients want that streamlined singular journey to find access uh, and pay for care. And those steps can include, you know, things like, you know, guidance to find the right care, ensure they have all of the, the prior authorization, you know, that they need from their insurer, understanding what their financial responsibility is, and just making sure they have full transparency and are um, engaged in every step of the process. Patrick, I, I know also the report found that nearly seven in 10 say that finding a great doctor or medical practice is like finding a needle in the haystack. Is that right? Yes. Well, have you tried to find a doctor? <laughs> yes. No, completely. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. What I, what I find so interesting about this is it's such a universal experience. It's like, it doesn't mm. matter where you are as an American. It seems like it's broken, it's fragmented, it's hard to navigate. And if you, I don't know, Patrick, what your point of view is, but it sounds like if you started really fixing these things and adjusting these things, and it didn't become this you know underlying burden or pressure that you have in the background because you haven't figured out who your doctor is, how to pay the bills, if you have something wrong with you, how to get checked out, that would really alleviate probably a lot of the safety or burnout feelings that people have as they deal with the thing that is probably one of the most important things to them, which is their well-being, right? And their health. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the good, it's like kind of a good news, bad news situation, which is mm -hmm. the good news is we know what needs to be done, right? Mm. The bad news is, is we're, we're kind of, you know, when compared to other industries, we're so far away and so kind of unique in the sense we're highly regulated and, you know, dealing with sensitive information and things that make it more complex and challenging to transform or innovate in that I think I think we have this, you know, sort of paralyzed feeling of, well, you know, how do we, how do we even get started on this? And so I think that's where, you know, when, when I'm talking providers out there trying to advancements in this space, you know, the recommendation is, you know, you know, the good news is we have a lot of low hanging fruit to go after when it's, you know, thinking about building that fully connected digital first experience to help simplify this. And so as an example, you know, what we're doing at, at Change Healthcare, you know, we have you know, a solution that's, you know, kind of centered or around patient needs. And so our goal is to ensure, you know, all patient registration steps are automated through that digital first approach, which includes appointment reminders, digital check-in, all those front desk functions can be turned into self-service or automated tasks that make it easy to uh, seek and get. I think it's also important. I think you noted that, that there seems to be a real important thing here also on patients wanting clear price transparency. That seems to be another whole area of, of challenge here, right? Yeah. So, and, and so, you know, the price transparency, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I, I think has been out there, you know, it's been in demand for a long time now. Um, again, like healthcare is one of those things where there's nuance as to why that's, that's been a challenge. But I think more and more, you know, uh, people are moving in the direction to, to provide, um, you know, sort of some of those financial uh, transparency measures, you know, before service. I think, you know, what I always say is the first thing to, to educate patients on is one, there is a financial obligation, right? Like, you know, a lot of people still don't, you know, realize that. And then the second is to give them, you know, a barometer for what to expect because, you know, this, you know, health 
healthcare expense can be one of those expenses that is like life altering. And so um, the more and more people that move towards clear tra- uh, uh, price transparency, as well as taking into some of those, you know, healthcare nuances like navigating insurance verification, whether your you know, provider is, you know, in or out of network or, you know, assisting with prior authorization, you know, to ensure that your, um, uh, your authorized, your insurance plan is authorized and getting those procedures. That's the sort of, you know, those are the sort of things that have put these, let's call it administratively burdensome processes in place that get, that cause people on both sides to give up. And so the goal is, you know, by, by increasing transparency, making things more automated and self-service, we will kind of uh, mitigate some of that, you know, those points of abrasion and, and get more people through the system seamlessly. Well, it seems like great entrepreneurs are always looking for pain points to solve and make something better. And boy, if this isn't filled with friction and pain, I don't know what sector isn't. This is really helpful, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yeah. Libby, any I last say, thoughts? Uh, no problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> please. No problem. <laughs> no problem. And thumbs up. Just throw some emojis in there. <laughs> Absolutely. That's Patrick Drury with Change Healthcare. And uh, we'll put a link to the to the most recent report into the show notes. But we want to thank everybody for joining us. That's our show for this week. And if you've got a polling idea, please, will you drop it to us at americathisweek.com. I'll so you can find old episodes there for everything that we're covering. And uh, if you like this show, please leave us a, a note or drop us a review. But again, thanks so much to Patrick Drury from Change Healthcare. And as always, Libby, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone.